I used an opening illustration about food and by God's providence I get to use another illustration about food. <laughs> uh, we, um, I was wondering if you know that feeling uh, when you, uh, you're starving, you know, not starving, starving, like you haven't eaten for weeks, but like when you've, you know, you've missed a meal and you're hanging out for, for, the, next, for the next meal, or maybe um, that, that feeling of uh, when you've just done a really hard day's work and you're just looking forward to, for, for that food to, to satisfy your hunger that you're hanging out for. And then you get that food and you're, you're satisfied, you're satiated, you're, you've, you're filled up. And you, you can rest. And hunger is just, it's so far away, it's, it's a distant memory. We just relax in that, in that kind of post-food bliss, having been satisfied. Do you know that feeling? You may have felt it on Christmas Day after, after lunch. That feeling of fullness and satisfaction. Well... I want us to have that feeling of fullness and satisfaction this morning. Not, not on, on physical food. I want you to have that feelness, feeling of fullness as you leave this place. I want us to, to go face first into God's word where we can meet Jesus. And this bloke Jesus is going to give us the best meal we ever had. He's not going to give you a physical meal on a plate this morning. It's going to give you a spiritual meal that you can never top. I want you to leave knowing that if you have Jesus, you have had the best feed on offer in the world. No other religion, no other life experience, no other relationship will ever be able to top Jesus. I want you to eat Jesus. So we're going to spend some time walking through this text that we've looked at in John chapter 6. And we're going to look at it bit by bit in the hope that God would speak to us through it. I'm hoping that it become abundantly clear that Jesus is a spiritual meal. It's a, sorry, I'm, going to, I'm hoping that as we look at this miracle where Jesus feeds the 5,000, that we will see that it's a physical miracle of a spiritual reality. And we're going to look at five kind of aspects of that. In these five sections, I hope we'll be able to answer the question. The question is, how will Jesus satisfy our hunger? What will he give us to fill us up? So that question again is, how will Jesus satisfy our hunger? What will he give to fill us up? So as we look to the text, the first section, verses 1 to 4, we're going to situate ourselves in this story this morning. You know, we should also be always be careful about like inserting ourselves into the stories of the Bible. You know, we always, we want to be David, you know, slaying Goliath when, when re, in reality, the kind of, if we're going to be anybody in that story, it's going to be the Israelites quivering on the hill. You know, we want to be like Job who was so wise and, and, and withstood those trials, but usually we're actually the taunting friends. Or, or we want to be like Mary at Jesus' feet, listening to what he has to say, but in reality, we're probably more like Martha, running around like headless chooks. So as we approach this story today, I want to ask, who best, re- who best represents us in the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000? Well, there's a certain sense in which we're like the disciples who are learning from Jesus and receiving from Jesus. But I think we're better represented by the crowd this morning. We are the crowd. We're the people who 
have to come to Jesus and we, and we need to receive from him and we need to receive um, from him as the crowd does. But just like the crowd, we have messed up motives. Then the crowd has messed up motives. So let's have a look at the motives that they had for being there uh, in verses 1 and 2. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So here we have Jesus. He's traveling around as a missionary. He's, he's on mission. He's been traveling around preaching and teaching. He's performing signs and wonders that go along with his message. He's been healing people and casting out demons. But along with that, he's been preaching and teaching, instructing people about God. But why are the crowds following Jesus? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They weren't interested in the message that Jesus was teaching. They were interested in the miracles. They wanted the healings. They wanted the spectacular. They wanted to see the celebrity preacher. They wanted entertainment. Or maybe they just wanted to satiate the curiosity about this guy. Teaching was secondary for the crowd, yet for Jesus, the teaching was primary and the miracles secondary. The miracles were designed to support and illustrate his teaching. They proved what he was saying with his mouth. Their motives were a bit messed up. Now, we can't be too hard on the crowd because our motives are messed up as well. We're just like that. We get a bit turned around. Now, I'm just sure many of them were appreciative of the message, and genuinely wanted to hear what, what Jesus had to say, but within that crowd, their motives were mixed. It's like, it's like when a guest preacher comes to town. Um, like we had, um, a few, a little, last year we had, uh, what's his face? Um, his, sorry? Jeff Durbin came and preached here one Sunday morning. You know, he's a, he's a guy from the States who's got a bit of a name for himself as a preacher and church planter and evangelist. And he came along and, and preached for us one Sunday morning, which was, which was great. And he had a good message. But there's, we come with mixed motives. We come, you know, we want to see the, the, like the big name guy. You know, we want to, we want to see the new and exciting. We want to see the, uh, we want to have our curiosity um, met, you know, why is this guy so famous? And we think that maybe they have something to offer us that the regular average guy on the pulpit doesn't have. So if, um, if our motives are messed up in the simple things of like listening to a preacher who's sharing the gospel with us, how much more will our, will our motives be messed up in broader life matters? You know, how are our motives skewed? I want you to want, I wanted you to think about that. How are your motives skewed? Why are you here this morning? What are you hoping to achieve by being here this morning? There's both good and bad reasons to be here, uh, just as I have mixed motives for being here myself. There's a whole bunch of motives that can drive our Christianity. It's worth thinking about what undergirds our faith. Are we, do we come to Jesus because we want miracles? Do we, do we come to Jesus because we think he can make our life more comfortable? Or maybe you think that Jesus is your life insurance. He's your ticket to heaven. Or are you here this morning because you think that coming to church will make you a more moral, good person to please God? 
What kind of hunger are you asking Jesus to satisfy? It's worth thinking about. But let's keep following the crowd, figuratively speaking, up the mountain as they go up. Recognising that, like the crowd, we come up to Jesus on the mountain with mixed motives. Let us come to Jesus on that mountain and see what he will offer to satisfy us. So let's, let's look at the next couple of verses to satisfy the scene of this mountaintop experience. Jesus has gone up there to escape. See, Jesus has went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So Jesus, the other Gospels tell us that Jesus had actually gone up onto the mountain to get away. Like the crowds had been following around, wanting all this healing and had been teaching. And he wanted to get away, have a bit of a, a reprieve, go to pray. He was trying to recuperate after some pretty heavy ministry work. But he wasn't going to get any peace. It's kind of like when you're, when you're trying to get a few moments peace from the kids and you set them up with some activities in another room and try and escape to have a few moments to yourself. But before you know it, all the kids are in the room with you and completely ignoring what you would uh, tried to distract them with. What you were trying to escape from follows you. But despite our best efforts, we probably end up irritated and grumpy with our kids if they follow us around when we're trying to get the break. But not Jesus. He... Unlike us in our selfishness and frustration, Jesus graciously accepts the crowd, even as he's trying to leave them them behind. Even as Jesus tries to model a devotional lifestyle of prayer and rest, he also models to us what it looks like to be selfless and forgiving, bearing with one another's shortcomings and the needs of those around them before his own personal preferences. So instead of legging it, Jesus receives the crowd, just as he receives us this morning. As we come to him, he receives us as a messed up people with mixed motives. We figuratively, as a crowd this morning, as a congregation, approach Jesus on the mountaintop in this place. But what will Jesus offer to satisfy us here today? And as we push on through the text, we see that Jesus uses the approaching crowd as a teaching opportunity. He will use the multitude as a chance to reveal more about himself to the disciples and to the crowd. But he has to prep the disciples first. He has to get them ready to receive. So let's look at verses 5 to 10 and see if you can notice how Jesus prepares the disciples. Uh, It says, Jesus, uh, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus seems concerned about the welfare of the crowd, which I'm sure he is, but he will use this whole affair to reveal himself to the disciples. They're in a pretty remote place. People have travelled a pretty, uh, pretty distant, pretty long way to see him. Essentially, um, 
Jesus sees the crowd and he turns to Philip and he says, um, where's the nearest Domino's? We should get some the people some pizza. And then Philip replies, look, if I had 30 grand in my pocket right now, I wouldn't even have enough to get them one slice of pizza each. There were so many people there that feeding them all seemed like an impossibility, even if you had 30 grand in your pocket. You've got to remember, there's at least 5,000 blokes, you know, along with women and children. So if we start counting uh, women and children along, we would we'd probably double or triple our count of people who are there. Jesus wanted his disciples to feel the impossibility of the task. How are you going to feed all these people? It's massive, and it's way beyond their capabilities. Where would you even start if you were going to feed, you know, 5, 10, 15,000 people? Jesus gets his disciples to admit there is no way that they can pull it off. They have to admit their inability. They have to admit that they have no chance. And I like how John Chrysostom from the late 300s uh, says this. He says, uh, they profited the more, the disciples profited the more, having first confessed the difficulty of the matter, so that when it should come to pass, they might understand the power of God. They profited from actually admitting their defeat and their inability to help out. Because they realised the impossibility of their task, they were better prepared to learn from the miracle that Jesus would perform. And, and Jesus does this with his disciples often. He sets them up. He sets them up for failure, essentially, so that they can learn from the tasks ahead. And you know what? It does that with us. He puts us in circumstances where we're better primed to receive the power of God. Have you noticed that before? Have you noticed how God does that in your life? The circumstances of life lead you to a place that just happens to align with the subject of your morning devotion or, um, or, or what you've been going through in the week is addressed by Sunday sermon. Jesus is not unaware of what is happening in the world and in your life. He might be preparing you for a teaching opportunity. Jesus might be preparing you for a massive teaching opportunity through a time of suffering, through a time of persecution, through a time of spiritual upheaval, perhaps. You see, there's no such thing as accidents in the Christian life. Just like Jesus does for the crowd on that mountain, and just as he prepared those disciples, Jesus is working in your life. He's working in your life to bring you closer to him. He's working in your life to reveal more of himself to you. He's working in your life to sanctify you in new and often uncomfortable ways. So I suppose the question to ask in follow-up to that is, are you, rece- are you prepared to receive? Are you prepared to receive from Jesus, even if it's hard? Are you open to the work of, of God's Spirit in your life, or are you stubbornly trying to just kind of reject that, do things your own way, avoid anything that might seem remotely uncomfortable? Part of being prepared for Jesus to work in our life is being able to acknowledge the enormity of the problem. The disciples needed to see the impossibility of their problem 
without Jesus. I hope you can realize the impossible task of reconciling you to God without Jesus. There's an enormous problem there. There's an enormous problem there. Even if you are, um, even if you've been uh, justified by God, there's still an enormous problem there with your sanctification in being purified. You need Jesus to do the impossible in your life and transform you. Your messed up motives need transforming. And you need to be prepared to receive from Jesus. But what will Jesus offer to meet our need? Let's keep moving. Next we get to this crux of the miracle. Having prepared Jesus, uh, sorry, having prepared the disciples to learn, Jesus performs a crazy miracle. But like all good Christians, he says grace before they eat. Read verse 11 and to 13 with me. Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed to them who were seated and also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Do you see what happened here? Jesus took the packed lunch, five loaves and two fish, enough for a couple people maybe, and he fed over 5,000 people. And not only that, there was leftovers. I don't know about you, but as you read this story, you know, in your Christian life, you probably heard this story several times before. It's in most of the Gospels. It's, it's a very common miracle story about Jesus. But I wonder if you kind of miss the magnitude of what he just did. He took five loaves and two fish and he fed 5,000 people and there was leftovers there was abundance with Jesus they had their fill they had as much as they wanted and after eating Jesus sends the disciples around with baskets to gather up the leftovers and there's no coincidence here that there were 12 baskets full of leftovers for the 12 apostles Jesus took a little and he made it a lot He does this amazing creative act, showing us his power over the creation. We have to work within creation. If we want to make stuff, if we want to multiply stuff, we have to work under the normal modes of growing and harvesting and processing and baking. Yet Jesus is over and above the creation and he does what he wants with the creation. He is the one that multiplies and proliferates. After all, he is the one through whom God created the world and and, and spoke the world into existence. Jesus takes an impossible situation and he makes it possible. He receives the hungry masses and he provides for their need. And not only a little, but a lot. There is abundance in the hands of Jesus. He gives them what they need and more. And folks, I want you to know that with Christ, there is overflowing. In Christ, there is abundance. In Christ, there is more than enough. In Christ, there is fullness and satisfaction. You see, God provides for his people. In this case, it's bread. But this is a physical miracle that represents a spiritual reality. 
This is a physical miracle that represents a spiritual reality. The spiritual reality is that Jesus provides for your spiritual needs. And I can tell you that your needs are great. And we come as this crowd this morning. We gather here with mixed motives, being prepared to receive from Christ. And Jesus provides what we need. The thing is that we're like the crowd in that we don't know what we really need. It's like going to the doctor. You know that when you feel unwell, something is wrong. And you know that the doctor will probably be able to help you. So you go to visit him to get a diagnosis in the hope that he might give us what we really need to to heal us. But the thing is, you have to be willing to hear the bad news first. There's no point going to a doctor and then ignoring everything he says. Well, I've got some bad news for you today. Our need is bad, as I've already mentioned. Our need is massive. We have a fundamental problem in our lives that we need Jesus to meet. Because we're spiritually dead. We're spiritually destitute. We're messed up and broken people. And we don't just need Jesus to fix up our morality. We don't just need Jesus to perform miracles. We don't need Jesus to give us a bit of a social club so that we can get together every week. We need something more than that. Because our problem is not external, but our problem is internal. I am broken. You are broken. We walk around as though everything is fine, but in reality we get eaten up inside by our sin. Sin is like a cancer in our life. We're infected with death. We're twisted and blackened in our soul. And I want you to examine yourself. You know it to be true. You know that sometimes you say things and you go, where did that come from? I can't believe I said something like that. You see, with, with our need, we are separated from God, dead in our sins. You in yourself are in desperate need of revival. You need life, but you can't resuscitate yourself. We're like people on the ground who need CPR. We can't do CPR on ourselves. We need somebody external to us to come and to give us spiritual life, to resuscitate us. We need somebody like Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour of the world, to come and to, and to provide for our need. But... What will he give us to satisfy our need? Now, for the Jew, this miracle of feeding the 5,000 on a mountaintop conjures up deep Old Testament overtones. You see, Jesus doesn't exist in a vacuum. He lives in a culture with history, with, uh, uh, with traditions, with an understanding, uh, with, with a religious order. He operates in a world with deep religious roots and a rich history of God's help in, in his people's history. Now, if the, if the crowd was to think back in their history, back to the days of their wandering in the desert, they would remember the stories of the great prophet Moses who delivered them from slavery, who joined them in covenant to the Lord at a mountain in the wilderness of God, and on God's behalf, he fed them with bread from heaven. You seeing, seeing the, the imagery here, you've got the great prophet Moses who freed the people from slavery. He, uh, he was their intercessor at the mountain of God, like we looked at in Exodus in recent months. 
And he was the prophet who was around when God fed them with manna from heaven. Bread from heaven. The people of Israel needed food and God gave them manna in the wilderness. He provided for them miraculous food from heaven. And Moses also promised that after him would come a prophet that would be greater than him. So what's happening with the people on the mountaintop in Israel with Jesus? They're seeing a guy who's rocked up as a spiritual leader, who's teaching them authoritatively, and who is feeding them miraculously with bread from heaven on a mountain. They are seeing the pieces come together. They recognize that this is their Messiah. They're seeing their Old Testament promises being fulfilled before their very eyes. And as the 12 tribes of Israel gathered up manna in the wilderness, the 12 apostles gather up bread in the wilderness on that mountain. And so the crowd rightly recognizes Jesus as the prophet and the king. And so they do what seems natural to them. They want to install Jesus as their king. As It says in verse 14 and 15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus knows what's going on in the minds of people. They were about... They were able to rightly understand the meaning of what Jesus was doing, but they wanted to take him by force and make him king. They had a picture of Jesus that was too small. They had a picture of Jesus that was made after their own desires. The crowd wanted to force Jesus into a mold of their own creation. They recognized him for who he was, but they wanted to twist him for their own purposes. They wanted to make him a simple king over the Israelites. Jesus was there to do something much bigger, much greater, much grander than just become a local political leader. He is the prophet promised by Moses. He is the king of Israel, but he was not there to serve their mere whims. And the same goes for us. As we approach Jesus as a crowd this morning, we're not here to make up a Messiah in our own image. We're not here to make Jesus fit into our idea of what he should be. We're not here to tell him how he should do it. We're here to receive Jesus on his own terms, not our terms. He is in charge, and so we go with his way, not our way. So let's recognize Jesus for who he is. Don't try and fit him into your box of what you think Jesus should be. You know, it's often said... uh, um, it's well-intentioned, but it will, people will say things like, I made Jesus Lord of my life. It's a common way of trying to communicate that we've converted to Christianity, but I want to adjust our thinking here. We all understand what I made Jesus Lord of my life means, but it's somewhat misleading. You see, I don't make Jesus king of our lives. He is king. It doesn't matter. Sorry, it's a matter of recognizing it when we become Christians. He is already Lord. I didn't put him there. He chooses to install himself as Lord, not me. And on top of that, you and I don't get to choose how much he is Lord over. The crowd wanted to make him Lord over a sad bunch of Jews in Palestine. But Jesus is so much bigger and greater than a local political leader. He is the ruler of the earth, creator of the cosmos. And this man now sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. He reigns over the earth as the Lord Most High. 
He is the one who entered into the world to redeem it for himself. He has inherited the nations. The earth is his and the fullness thereof. The ends of the earth are his possession. Christ is king and he awaits the day when the last of his enemies will be put to lasting shame. So the question is, what does this king offer us? What will this king give us to satisfy our hunger? Well, the story of the the guys getting fed on the mountain doesn't quite answer the question. We actually have to read on in John chapter 6 to find out the answer to this question. What will Jesus give us to satisfy our hunger? We see that after this incident with the crowd, that they kept following Jesus, even though he disappeared and went into seclusion. The crowd kept following Jesus. They started stalking him. They wanted more bread. They wanted more miracles. They'd found a guy who could feed the multitudes with a few loaves. They found the guy who was fitting the description of the great prophet. Why bother growing and baking our own bread when this Messiah can just feed us with food from heaven? So they they track him down. They actually track him to the other side of the lake of Tiberias. Lake of, I think it's Lake Sea of Galilee. So they track him down on the other side of the lake and they approach Jesus and they wanted more food. But Jesus explained that the bread he gave them was representative of something bigger and greater than free food. Jesus was indicating to them that it was a physical miracle representing a heavenly reality. He wanted to feed them, but not with bread that would keep them going to their next meal. He wanted to give them something that would satisfy the hunger of their souls. He wanted to give them eternal life. He wanted to give them himself. If we read John 47 to 54... Well, see how Jesus says this so plainly. He says, in response to these people, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, Jesus presents himself as the embodiment from bread, of bread from heaven. He presents himself. He is the true bread. He is the fulfillment of the, of the symbol, which was the bread of, the, of, of heaven in the wilderness and the bread of heaven, which was the manna in the wilderness. He is the one who gives and sustains life. The crowd wanted food to fill their bellies, but, but Jesus wanted to satisfy their souls with himself. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If, every, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So what does Jesus give us to satisfy our souls? 
He gives us himself. You need to eat Jesus. Unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have no life in him. And that's how you get eternal life. This is where we find our fullness and our satisfaction. This is where our hungers are satisfied. This is where our hunger is satiated. We don't need to look for spiritual fulfillment anywhere else. We don't need to look at what the world has to offer us. We don't need to to go to what sin has to offer us or what Satan has to offer us as counterfeits. We need Jesus. He provided himself. He is the bread. He is what is given to satisfy our hunger. He is the provision for our spiritual needs. Not only that, he is the only way to satisfy our spiritual needs. He is the only way. Unless you eat of him, you will have no life. Unless you partake of Jesus, you will remain spiritually dead. You will remain lifeless and destitute. And this is what we symbolize when we eat the Lord's Supper. When we act it out, we act out physically what we do spiritually. We do something physical that represents a heavenly reality. We eat Jesus as the bread of life and we drink his blood. You see, Jesus delivered his body and his blood over as a sacrifice. There was a covering for sin. He was the breaker of death. Jesus entered into death and he rose triumphant from it. He redeemed us. He rescued us from the power of sin and death to give us life and light eternally. But how do you eat Jesus? We do it, we do it in the Lord's Supper as a, as, a, as a symbolic act. But how do you do it spiritually? Jesus tells us, whoever believes has eternal life. Eating Jesus is a figurative way of illustrating our belief. We put our faith in him. We partake of him. We trust him. We take him for ourselves. It's like when you eat regular food. You pick it up and you put it in your mouth. You chew it. You ingest it. With Jesus, belief doesn't mean just saying, oh, yeah, Jesus is my mate. It means taking him, receiving him for yourself. It means reaching out for him, receiving him as the medicine for your internal brokenness and twisted nature. Like the food that sustains your body, you have to believe in Jesus. You have to receive him to sustain your soul. We must go to Jesus to receive from him and be maintained by him. We must go to him in real faith, receive mercy from him. We need to be maintained by his spirit. So to kind of bring this all together and bring this to a close, we came like the crowd, with mixed motives, where Jesus has to work with us in the circumstances of our life, with the way that he speaks to us through his word. He works in us to prepare us to receive. He provides for our needs as the crowned king of all by giving us himself to satisfy our need. In this passage, we've seen a physical miracle of a heavenly reality. And that heavenly reality of Christ given for you is the bread of life, the bread of life who is eternal life when we take and eat. Jesus gives himself to meet our spiritual need. He will satisfy our spiritual hunger. He will fill us. 
He will satisfy us. He will take away our hunger if we would but receive him in true belief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you provide for our needs. You provide for our earthly needs. You put roof over our head, clothes on our back, food in our bellies. But Lord, we know that these uh, fleeting things, these are the things of this earth. What we really need, what we need most, is we need our spiritual needs met by Christ. We need him to undo the brokenness in our life. We need him to to bring us into reconciliation with God. We need We need you to purify us from all that is ungodly within us. And we thank you that you satisfy our need with Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would work in our lives in such a way that you would create a hunger for us that we might reach out for Christ. Lord, we try and fill up our life with all kinds of other things to satiate our hunger, and it blocks out the things of God. So please, Lord, create space in our lives where we have a hunger and desire to reach out for Christ. And Lord, for us who have been on the walk with Christ for many years already, please, Lord, don't don't let us um, see this as ordinary. Please, Lord, don't don't let us um, uh, lose sight of the vastness, the greatness of what it is that Christ has provided for us. Give us, Lord, an ever-present desire to look to Jesus, to have our hunger satisfied, and not to other things. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.